Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Farin Nasrali, and I'm delighted to be in conversation with Dan Siegel, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine, Executive Director of the Mindsight Institute, a pioneer in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, and author of dozens of books on the mind, the practice of mindfulness, the brain, and parenting. And we're here today to talk about how to cultivate well-being for the mind and brain. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I thought I'd start with the basics. What exactly is interpersonal neurobiology? Well, interpersonal neurobiology is a term for a field where we combine all the different disciplines of science, for example, anthropology, studying culture, sociology, studying groups, or biology, studying life processes, or chemistry and physics and even math, and we bring them all together into one perspective, and that's what interpersonal neurobiology is. And... How does it relate to the study of mind and brain, which is really what your expertise is? Yeah, so what we do is we take that perspective of combining all the sciences together and ask the question, what is the human mind? How does it connect to the brain? And once we address those kinds of questions, we can say, well, how do you cultivate well-being in your life? What's the role, for example, of reflection and contemplative practice? What's the role of relationships in cultivating health? And so we look at this from this broad interdisciplinary perspective and come up with some very practical suggestions for uh, individuals or families or couples or, you know, if you're a parent, how you might parent your child or teachers in a school or people in an organization. Even people in government uh, can benefit from thinking you know, deeply about how do we support well-being in our communities. So there are lots of applications of the science in different ways, and that's how, how the issue about the mind comes up. So at this juncture, let's make the distinction. How would you define the difference between mind and brain? Yeah, well, it's a great question because for thousands of years, people have thought the mind is simply what the brain does. That's since the days of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago. And William James, the father of modern psychology, reaffirmed that. And, of course, neuroscience talks like that, that uh, what we see when we see brain activity is we're seeing the mind. But the issue is that the mind may be bigger than the brain itself. That is, it may include the whole body. And it's not only inside your skin encased body, it also happens between you and other people, like what's happening right now between you and me or what happens between a parent and a child. So when you look at mind like that, that's something that's bigger than the brain, you can say, well, what in the world is it? So the brain, to start with that one, is a bunch of cells up in your head that interconnects with the rest of your body 
and interfaces with the outside world, but it's basically an organ of the body. The mind, in contrast, is a process that emerges, this is our proposal, from energy and information flow that is fully embodied and fully relational. So you can feel the mind inside your body. You can feel the mind in a room, let's say, where there are people communicating with each other. You can even feel the mind, I'll suggest to you, as you walk through nature. And in all these ways, the relationality of mind is about energy and information flow and how it's shared. And that flow also happens in your whole body, not just up in your head. So though we can study the brain in a scanner, the mind is broader than that process up in the skull, and it's even bigger than the body itself. So we see the mind as an emergent, in science, you'd call it an emergent property of energy and information flow that's both embodied and relational. And one of those aspects is called self-organization. So these are all you know, really exciting scientific notions that pull us out of what we've been told by scientists for thousands of years that's really limited us in many ways from having a scientific view of, I think, what the mind truly is. So let's talk about this interrelational aspect of mind, that it's the flow of energy and information. So how do we cultivate well-being in our mind, given the fact that we're so interdependent in our relationships and in how we live? Well, that's exactly the point, that interdependence is a beautiful example of how mind is just something much bigger than just your your head. Um, but if you look at the mind as a self-organizing emergent property, so it, it, this takes a, just a, a, a brief kind of side statement, which is that when you look at the mathematics of what are called complex systems, they have something called emergent properties. So that's not just a feel-good, like, psychologists from California talking or something. It's actually a math term. Emergence is a mathematical property of complex systems. And one of the emergent properties that exists in our universe is called self-organization. So self-organization has this strange quality where it, as an emergent property, arises from the interaction of elements of something, like in a cloud would be water molecules and air molecules. For a person, it would be energy and information flow that we can talk about in a moment. But that's the fundamental essence of the system of mind. And the emergent quality is that the energy information is interacting with itself, and, that ha and, it, and these processes emerge from that, like feelings and thoughts and things we attribute to the mind. And then, because it's self-organizing, this aspect of emergence turns back and regulates that from which it's coming. So it's kind of counterintuitive. But once you look at it as a self-organizing process, then you can ask the question, what might a healthy mind be? And you get this amazingly useful answer, which is you differentiate, and some people in science call it segregate. I don't really like that term, really, but that's what the mathematicians use. You, you make things specialized or separate, so we'll call it differentiation, and then you link them together. So the larger view, we would use the word integration, not just for the linkage, but the balance of linking and differentiating. So when you, you look at that process, that's what makes self-organization the most adaptive process it can be. 
And uh, what's so exciting about that is that integration, linking differentiated parts, happens in your head, it happens in your body and its connection to the brain in your head, and it happens in relationships, whether it's a parent-child relationship, a romantic relationship, a family, a community, a culture. You can look at basically when integration is present, the system is flexible, adaptive, and vital. When it's not optimizing its flow in this self-organizing way through integration, it leads to either chaos or rigidity. It's like a river. The central flow is like harmony. That's the flow of integration. And if you're on one bank, you could be on the bank of chaos. The other bank, the bank of rigidity, you see this sadly in our world these days, we're impairing integration in so many ways on our planet, and you're seeing the chaos and rigidity that result. Wow, there's so much to your answer. I know. And... <laughs> this is why when people ask me to do a 20-minute short talk, and I said, well, how about you know, 20 hours? You know, because <laughs> there's a lot, there's amazing implications for so many aspects of our life that are really useful, you know, and uh, that's the fun, I mean, it's the fun thing about it, and it's also why when people get into it, they go, oh my God, there's so much to read, and that's why I write all these different books on the subject. So let's talk specifically about practices that people can adopt as a way of getting better at integration, managing energy flow, and developing harmony in the mind. Yeah. Well, you know, you've caught me on a fantastic day because uh, with my daughter's help doing the illustrations, I just turned into endorsers the... the um, manuscript for my next book which does just what you're saying it's called aware and you can go to my website today and you can do this drdansegel.com and go to the resources tab and just do the wheel of awareness practice so aware is a book all about the wheel practice and basically it takes two statements it takes the statement that when you want to change your life toward well-being you want to use consciousness and then when you want to move it in a way that cultivates well-being and health, you want to move it towards integration. So then it says, well, what would happen if you integrated consciousness? And that sounds kind of weird, but it's actually quite simple. And what you do is you differentiate elements of consciousness from each other, and then you link them together. Now, how do you do that? If you picture a wheel with a central hub and an outer rim, it's actually a table in our office, but... No one wanted to call it the table of awareness, so we call it the wheel of awareness. And what you do is you place the knowns of consciousness, like what you hear or see or smell or taste or touch, on one segment of the rim. You then can move a metaphoric spoke of attention over from this hub. We'll talk about where you have the awareness over to the next segment of the rim of the things you're aware of, the knowns of consciousness. So this would include the interior sensations of the body, and then you can move this spoke over to the third segment of the rim, which is, are your mental activities like feelings or thoughts or memories, things like that. And then you move this spoke over to the fourth and final segment of the rim, which is the experience of relationality or interconnectedness, the interdependence you spoke about. Um, and even as you go through the book, you'll see how to do this. You you can actually, um, when you do it, when you get used to doing it and comfortable, you can have a moment before you get to that fourth segment of our relationality 
and bend the spoke around or leave the spoke in the hub and experience awareness of awareness. And for many people, this is a very uh, accessible way to integrate consciousness and bring integration into your life. Uh, and there's some really exciting possibilities of what it's actually illuminating. But just from a practical point of view, it it, it helps people reduce anxiety, um, helps them deal with different challenges in their life like trauma. Um, and in many ways, it it gives a grounding, a clarity of the mind itself, and it allows the sense of self to expand in this really uh, fascinating way that, that no matter what a person's culture is, uh, uh, in the studies I've done of the wheel, um, it, it seems to be independent of culture or educational background or meditation history that you can use this tool to integrate your life. And by integrate, you mean take in the experience, the external awareness of internal experience and bring that into our relationships in a harmonious way, that all those things come together in a harmonious way. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's really interesting. Let's start with the first part of what you're saying. You know, simply by differentiating, that is, um, highlighting the differences, that's what, that's what differentiates means. So to, to highlight the differences between knowing in this metaphoric hub versus the knowns on the rim, just to start there. When a person does that, uh, and I just got an email from my neighbor, actually, who's going to come over in just a short while, who just finished the book, and it was like this incredible email where she's talking about what reading the book did for her about just this point, that when you access the hub, this pure knowing, this uh, awareness in its purity, and you distinguish that, you differentiate it from the knowns, like even interactions with other people or, you know, what you hear, what you see, what you think, what you remember, what you feel in your body, all these things we, we mentioned on the rim. Um, what happens, which is so interesting, is it gives a, an access to a deep sanctuary of peace and clarity. For some people even, they have the feeling of profound interconnection, which is what my neighbor experienced, um, this feeling of, for some, eternity. And in, in the book Aware, I, I talk about what may be going on, because I've done this now systematically with thousands of people, and I did it at, you know, where I recorded it for, with 10,000 people. And now I don't bother recording it anymore because the results are so, so interestingly similar that people have this feeling of openness, spaciousness, of timelessness, of God, of love, of joy, when they get in this hub and what the wheel practice does is it gives you this immediate access to this inner sanctuary that then now going to what you you brought up you can then allow whatever comes up on your rim to be differentiated from the hub and then to you know if someone is feeling a certain way toward what you said to come from a place of love really and compassion toward whatever they're saying, and if you have your own defensiveness that arises, it's arising from your rim. So you have the freedom, really, to, um, you know, to basically live from the hub. There's a whole another layer of this that's not just a metaphor, but a, po a possible mechanism we can get into if you want. But 
um, it, it, it's what's, what's fascinating when you get into that mechanism, by the way, because I know about Banyan books, you know, it, it's so far people send me these books on different spiritual traditions and then they write to me about it or talk to me about it. And what's so interesting about it is whether it's spiritual poetry, like from Rumi or, you know, people talking about you know, the Christian faith or the Jewish faith, or the Hindu faith or the Islamic faith or the Buddhist faith. I mean, it's so interesting that this, the mechanism beneath the wheel seems to fit with the, the spiritual practices people at least have told me about. And that's really fascinating. Why would that be the case that it would kind of bridge across all these traditions and also be consistent with science? I mean, that's, it's absolutely fascinating and useful. Mm-hmm. And it, when I hear you speak, it sounds like you're trying to articulate something that's transcendent of transcendent of ordinary experience and yet a part of everything we do and who we are. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is this is the interesting thing because my own personal background is zero. I have no background in, you know, spiritual, you know, training or education or anything like that. I'm I'm basically a clinician and a scientist and a father and a husband and all that stuff. But I don't have any background in this. So this was like a journey of a science clinical guy that is I'm based in science but want to find clinical applications that are useful for people. And then this wheel came up sort of by accident. And then when I would then meet people in the contemplative traditions or people, you know, a dear friend of mine, John O'Donohue, who was an Irish Catholic priest and a, an Irish uh, mystic as well, you know, when we would talk about it at this level, it was like, oh, this is so interesting that it actually, even though it's completely grounded in science and comes from science, it seems to dissolve the boundaries between science and spirituality, but it never intended to do that. I mean, that's kind of the wild thing. It wasn't like, oh, let's try to build a bridge. No, it was like, let's just try to understand reality. And then this stuff all emerged, and then it was like, oh, wow, this is really amazing. And so you can have conversations with people, if they're open to it, you know, about the possible grounding mechanism underlying various religious traditions, contemplative traditions, and even, um, you know, meditative scientific studies. So it's, it's, it's an amazing moment, actually, to, to be engaging with people in conversations about how do you bring well-being in the world that seems to match with spiritual recommendations and scientific findings and clinical interventions, and here's a mechanism that ties all those things together. Now, I'm really curious to know what impact has studying this had on your own personal life and personal relationships? You know, it's had a huge impact, I've got to say, because, you know, as I mentioned, you know, my background is uh, as a science-trained person and also a clinician. I'm a physician. And um, so, I, you know, I never thought I'd um, be <laughs> engaging in conversations with people from so many different walks of life. So personally, it's been uh, just like mind-boggling to now have my, some of my closest friends uh, are deeply rooted in spiritual traditions 
And so when we go out and hang out as friends, the kinds of conversations we have about the nature of reality, about time, about existence, about life and death, the meaning of life, all that kind of stuff, they talk from their particular tradition, like John, let's say, of his Irish Catholic and, and mystical tradition, um, or my friend Jack Cornfield, you know, um, where we'll just be hanging out, just you're asking about my personal life, you know, and so we talk at these deep, deep levels that do transcend uh, what you might think would be everyday experience, but it is everyday experience. I mean, we, you know, we may not always be thinking of it, but it's actually with everyone. And so I'll give you an example. I was teaching a workshop, and there was a woman in the front who was um, – she, she was crying. And so I said, you know, are you okay? And this is a big workshop, you know, a lot of people. And I didn't want to put her on the spot, but it was clear she was really upset. She took the microphone. She didn't have to, but she took the microphone. She said, now that I've heard the mechanism you've just described about how the mind works – she's like around 65 – she said, for the first time in my life, in this moment, she said, for the first time, I don't feel like I'm insane. I feel that like you've explained, you know, and it isn't me explaining, it's just the mechanism that's available for all of us just happens to be articulated in this perspective. But, you know, that this mechanism really for her helped her understand what she was experiencing that no one else seemed to be talking about in her in her friend circle, you know. So it was so rewarding that way personally. And so for me, and I talk about this at the end of the Aware book, you know, even when my father was passing recently, it was like, you know, he was a very strict mechanical engineer, and I'm not talking about the mechanism that the wheel reveals, but uh, he asked what's going to happen when he dies. He was just about to die, and I don't know what I would have said if I hadn't been immersed in this whole wheel journey where the mechanism beneath the wheel gives you a kind of window into life and death and what uh, you know what happens to us when we die, and that's what I told my father, and I was a little worried that he um, he would become pretty resistant to it, but he actually became very peaceful with what I explained to him. So, and what was it that you explained? Okay, so here's here's uh, a very brief kind of dive into it. And the last book I wrote um, uh, for the for the general book that I wrote myself, Mind, because I also write books on parenting with a colleague, Tina Payne Bryson. Um, but the last book I wrote was called Mind, and it kind of gives you a history of what I'm about to say in one minute, but it's a whole book about this one thing I'm about to say, which is if you really make the proposal, which was made back in the early 90s, that the mind is an emergent property of both embodied and relational energy flow, and some of that flow is information, so we'll just leave that word aside for now. That's a whole other topic, but let's just go with energy. So flow just means change. Then you have to ask, ask the question, what is energy, right? And information, by the way, can be thought of as a pattern of energy with symbolic value. So we'll just stick with energy for this to respond to your question. Mm-hmm. Then you say, okay, well, what is energy? So when you dive deeply, deeply, deeply with physicists, this is what they say. Energy in all its different manifestations, light, sound, electrical energy, chemical energy, Whatever form it takes, energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. 
period. Well, that's a very interesting definition of energy. From physicists, not yes. from me. This is, I, I was living with, for a week, uh, living, I was at a meeting for a week, well, living with them. We were living together for a week um, with 150 physicists, and all I did was say, what's energy, what's energy? And this is what they said. So I said, oh, my God, that explains everything. And they, and they go, what do you mean? I said, well, because here's what the study of the wheel showed, is that people would drop into the hub and get this incredible feeling of expansiveness of a sense of the infinite. And if you map out, which my daughter just helped me do in Aware as the illustrator, um, if you map out what this means, it means that if, if you look at the range of possibility to actuality, actuality would be like, if I were going to say a word now, and I say the word ocean, once I've said ocean, I've committed that energy to 100% certainty, right? Because I've said ocean. But right now, let's say we have a million words that you and I share in the English language, and I haven't said one, the chance of you knowing what I'm going to say is like one out of a million, right? So it's close to zero. So that spaciousness before the word is chosen is where energy arises from. And so it comes from this big pool of possibility, which... Um, some physicists like to call the, the quantum vacuum. Others call it the sea of potential. If you graph it out, it's like a, a plane of possibility where all possibilities rest. And even though for some physicists, energy actually isn't in this sea of potential, it's not in the plane, but it arises from it. That's a little technical point. But the point is, is that energy comes from this pool of possibilities. And it arises through various uh, forms of probability, actually, most likely, and enters into the word ocean. But if I say to you, okay, I'm going to name one of the five oceans on the planet, then it would be not one out of a million, it would be one out of five. So those would be called plateaus of increased probability. Well, you can take this view from the physicists of energy the movement from possibility to actuality and map it onto the wheel of awareness study and show basically that Things on the rim are these peaks of actualization or plateaus of heightened probability, but the hub itself, from all these descriptions, from this 10,000-person study, the hub of awareness, knowing of awareness, not the knowns, but the knowing, looks like it emerges from the plane of possibility. Now, that view takes a while to kind of grasp and play with, and you do the wheel in the book and go into these graphs and stuff, and it's really fun to see people like my neighbor, who's I've been knocking on the door for, to meet my wife. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like mind-boggling because then you realize, okay, if the mind is an emergent property of energy, then that means energy is somewhere along this probability spectrum from the peak to a plateau, and then it can drop into the plane of possibility. If it's true, and this could be completely wrong, because I'm a big doubting person, I always doubt even my own doubts. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm constantly questioning everything. But if this is true, because the pattern appears to hold in, in scientific studies and it meets what all these different spiritual traditions seem to be suggesting, then what that means is that you can learn to drop the energy position from fixed plateaus and peaks, which may be imprisoning you, down into the plane of possibility. 
into pure awareness. And that's likely what the wheel of awareness practice and maybe any kind of mindfulness meditation practice or compassion training, all these different ways of training the mind, um, I think that's what they do. And so what I said to my father was, he was a strict, you know, he was a strict engineer. He didn't want to hear any of this kind of weird stuff about the mind. But what I said to him was, you know, that he had, you know, trillions and trillions of eggs around and trillions and trillions of sperm around, but one sperm and one egg made him. This is the way I languaged this for him. And I said, so before he was conceived, what was he? He was a possibility. And then in the hundred years, because he lives a ripe old age, the hundred years or so he gets to live, you get to live in these bodies, you become an actuality for a certain period of what we call time or clock time. And this actualization of possibility is just a segment of what the possibilities that are there. And so you live out this thing you call your life in a body that, by the way, has what are called Newtonian properties because it's large macro states. It's this large accumulation of things. And it turns out that the universe that we live in has properties in it that Isaac Newton figured out. And I did the wheel actually around the apple tree. Someone invited me to go to his house where he was born, where he figured out all this physics of large objects. There's even a statement on his on, on the wall of what he said. He said, I can figure out the, I can predict the motion of celestial bodies planets and stars and stuff like that but i cannot predict the madness of men because i think the mind he was getting at this he didn't know this at the time the mind isn't just the body including the brain it's energy flow and when you talk about energy flow it requires that you talk about it at both the macro state level with newtonian properties like forces and you know time, chronological time, but you need to also go into the quantum microstate level. And when you do this, things that before, like for that woman in the workshop, made her feel like she was crazy, actually make total sense. Because the mind has both quantum properties based on probabilities and all sorts of other features that don't... uh, readily appear at the Newtonian macrostate level, but you also live in a body, so you have a part of your thoughts and feelings and memories and perceptions that are certainly Newtonian, right? So when we did this wheel of awareness around the apple tree, we made a a gesture to Sir Isaac, you know, and said, hey, you would probably have loved to do this meditation to realize the mind has both Newtonian, Sir Isaac, thank you, and quantum things which we didn't know about back then, 350 years ago, you know, quantum levels of reality, and that's what the mind is picking up, especially in pure awareness, which is probably a microstate. And so we play around between the hub, which has a lot of quantum properties, and the rim, which has a lot of Newtonian properties, and a lot of people just sort of hang out on the rim, and they get imprisoned by that, and they're frightened to, dry, to drop into the hub, to drop into this plane of possibility out of these plateaus and peaks of fixed, shared, meaning states of Newtonian mechanics, when in fact you drop down into the quantum level and there's all sorts of things you gain access to that are not um, readily apparent at the Newtonian level, so you feel like you're losing your mind, but in fact you're finding your mind. 
So in terms of the answer about life and death, would it be accurate to say that it's if a person is able to plug into the hub, yep. that the experience of death would not be one of an ending? Exactly. And that's what I told my dad. And you should have seen how peaceful his face looked. He said, thank you so much. That makes me feel so peaceful. Because I said, look, before you were conceived, you were in the plane of possibility. All this possibility was there. One sperm, one egg make you okay. That's an actualization. You get 100 years. And now when your body dies, you're going to go back to where you were before this infinite possibility. Wow. Yeah. Pretty amazing. I know. I mean, when I was with my dad, I was holding his hand. This is five years, six years ago almost now. And uh, I was holding his hand. He's a tough guy, you know, really tough mechanical engineer guy, kind of like everything had to be just so, you know, nothing about the mind or anything like that. You know, and there was this, I mean, literally, it was his, he was dying and, and asked me what's going to happen. And I said, Dad, look, you know, in my 30 years, or I guess then it was 25 years of being a psychiatrist, no one had ever come to me worried about where was I before I was conceived. And he looks at me like, what? I said, so let me tell you the story. And I tell him the story of the sperm and the egg. And, you know, thinking it's a, it's a parallel to what we're talking about, about the plane of possibility. I didn't think he could handle that whole thing. But it's the same exact issue. You know, if before you were conceived, you're in this infinite plane of possibility, this sea of potential, this quantum vacuum, that's really where you were. We're not even talking about time because that's a whole other wild thing. And then when your body is done with its hundred years of actualization, you simply go back to this sea of potential. And you asked me how it affected my life. It's completely changed my relationship with death. Has it changed your relationship with life too? Yeah. Yeah, because they go together, you know. They go together. It's, you know, what's so beautiful about it is, um, here's the thing. Everyone's rim, these plateaus and peaks, are different from each other. But everyone's hub, this plane of possibility, which is basically infinity, is the same. Infinity is infinity. So there's been a quality. I've always loved people, you know, and tried to see the best in people. And also now, building on that, you know, with this view of the wheel of awareness and the plane of possibility perspective, you know, when I see people, I look at them and I realize beneath their plateaus and peaks of difference, no matter what they're thinking or their opinions or political perspectives or beliefs or whatever their body looks like, forget the skin, I mean the whole inside of the body, in this person is a plane of possibility that I share and we find each other in the plane. And so in terms of living life, life has become kind of this amazing journey of just encountering other beings who are walking around as hubs, these planes of possibilities, manifesting differentiated aspects of their rims, if you want their plateaus and peaks. So we're different. Yes. At the, the place of plateaus and peaks, but you look at them and the feeling of love is sometimes overwhelming. In fact, I once did this in another country at the 
for the parliament and did the wheel of awareness and then we had a discussion of what it was like for people and one of the parliamentarians at the break came up and he said you know can i talk to you i said sure and he goes uh, you notice i didn't say anything during the discussion i go yeah actually i did notice that he goes do you want to know why and i said um yeah i i'd, I'd like to know why he didn't say anything he goes you know when we bent that spoke around and 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 just got in the hub i said yeah that's part of the practice you know i said yeah i know that part he goes and he gets very teary and he goes i have never felt so much love before in my life i said okay and he and i said so you felt love and you couldn't share that he goes if i were to tell my colleagues that i was feeling love and i was really teary he goes they would think i was weak so i said okay so i let me make sure i understand this you experienced love in the hub he goes oh my god so much love and i said okay but you couldn't share it no he said i said you couldn't share it because you didn't want your colleagues to think you're weak because if you feel love you're weak he goes that's exactly it i, I didn't want them to think i'm weak so i look at him and i said okay i understand why you didn't speak but i said let me ask you a question he goes what's that i said when you're like you know forming your public policy as a parliament like do you leave love out of the equation and he like looks at me in the silence that follows that and his eyes get really big and he starts wagging his finger at me like oh my gosh and then he goes over to his colleagues i don't know what they say because i didn't go over there and starts chatting him up and you know, this is what's so amazing about the wheel practice. It's just a simple practice, but also just the concept of love being in this plane of possibility. In this, in the Where book, I, I talk a lot about, you know, what the amazing uh, things that people have said to, to illuminate some of this is that there's this incredible overlap between love and awareness. That when you when you develop presence, and the Aware Book is all about the science of practice of presence, when you develop presence, you tap into this clarity of mind, this stability of just being aware, that overlaps completely with love. And so, in terms of does it affect how I'm living? Yeah, I mean, you know, I can't tell you how exciting it is to just have this way of living where every day is like this adventure, you know, and especially, you know, whether I'm teaching people the wheel or just living from the hub, you, you have this beautiful uh, and accessible kind of simple visual metaphor followed by this deep quantum probability view of energy that you carry around with you. And so everything becomes like this incredible adventure of life, including, you know, because we have some friends who are very ill and dying, unfortunately, right now. And um, you know, including that, you know, including the role of death in life, because they're not separate, you know. So do you think that plugging into that hub is one of the answers to the question about the response to what's happening in the world and the kinds of injustice and hatred and war and things like that? Yes. Completely. Great answer. <laughs> <laughs> Great question.
Because, well, you know, something, it may be that simple and it may be that important, you know. So, like, whether I go to governments and do this or, you know, next month I'm going to go to a climate change issue thing and say, look, you know, as long as we keep on thinking we're separate from nature, we keep on treating Earth like a trash can. And we have to tap into the hub to release the love where we realize Earth is just an extension of these bodies that we all share, you know. Quite a remarkable way to talk for a scientist. I know. It's, I'll tell you, I, I never um, thought I would be talking like this or writing like this. But doing this book, I mean, you know, doing AWARE and having my daughter as an environmental science graduate, um, that's what she does on the other part of her life in addition to being an illustrator. And so when, to do this book with her, you know, she's in her early 20s, you know, knowing what we're facing on the planet and feeling like, you know, this is this is a collective effort. This isn't just somebody writing a book or whatever, discovering this or that. It's really a collective effort of illuminating exactly what you just asked about. Like, what is the step? And I really do think the step is super simple. doesn't mean it's easy, but I actually think it's super simple. You You give people the opportunity to free their minds from the plateaus and peaks of hatred and greed and isolation and let them drop into the the plane this is the hub of the wheel you know to drop into the plane where suddenly they realize you know something it isn't just about the hundred years you get to live in this body and it's not just about the body you're in all these other bodies running around even in other species plants animals they're all you i mean literally they're all you and so you know whether it's about this hundred years that you're here and doing things to make the world better for who's going to be around 500 years from now, it's all you. And then suddenly, life becomes this incredibly joyful, awesome opportunity to share love. Well, that's a word that seems to be very at the forefront of these interviews I've been doing lately is love. So yeah. obviously there is something to the work that we're invited to, to do. Oh, exactly. And it's been so long, at least in science, that, you know, you're not supposed to talk like that or write about that or, you know. And um, I do think there's something very profound about love and awareness. That even if you look at, let's say, the neural correlates, the brain activity that goes along with awareness, pure awareness, and love, they're virtually indistinguishable. Really? Yeah, it's really, I mean, they don't talk like that in the science, but I'm like, for this book, I'm like summarizing all the science. I go, well, here's what love looks like. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's a pure awareness. Blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh my God, they're basically the same. So the journey to try to articulate this for the public and aware, you know, drawing on what the scientists are saying, they don't talk about, you know, these being the same, but but they look like they're basically the same thing. So what's fantastic about that is it really is what the world needs. So we have this convergence of, you know, scientific insights, spiritual wisdom traditions from thousands of years ago, and contemporary needs of our culture. And by the way, I'll just say this one thing, because I, 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 you know, I, it's so not said that, that while we're talking a lot about love, I think we also need to talk about another four-letter word 
which is the word self. And I think S-E-L-F, we've put the self in the body just like we used to put the mind in the head, always, most people still do. Um, and those are not only limited perspectives, they may even be toxic lies. Toxic in the sense that people feel isolated, meaningless, disconnected, and also toxic because, you know, if it's just about this body you're in and the 100 years you get here, well, then just treat the earth like a trash can. Why do you care? So the self being defined as a solo self is something, if you watch the language use of self, like self-compassion or self-interest or self-regulation, even something as beautiful as self-compassion should be called inner compassion, I think. And then when you have compassion for what we call the other, it should be inter-compassion. Because we have to stop othering. Well, that's a very interesting change in vocabulary that speaks more precisely to science, the scientific reality. Yeah, exactly. And, And we have to be careful because these words we use shape the perceptions that we live by. Absolutely. So inner compassion and inter-compassion. That's right. Well, there may be a whole subject of another interview just on that subject. Well, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you. It's a pleasure, and uh, we all have to work on this project together. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.